Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You are about to listen to the Getting Technology Right Ethics and Technology Podcast with Dr. Kevin Magnish. Get ready for a conversation about global values and technology, diversity and inclusion, discrimination, transparency in data, privacy, and cybersecurity. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hello and welcome to Getting Tech Right, the podcast about ethics and technology. My name is Kevin McNish and with me today is Tom Sorrell, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Warwick, to talk about ethics and social media. So Tom, could you tell people something about your research and your interests? Yes. Um, uh, so as people will have gathered, I'm a philosopher. Um, I've written um, I've written things in in quite a few areas of philosophy, but uh, since 2008 um, or so, I've started to become interested in technology and in particular the ethics of technology, starting with um, security technology, uh, technology used against uh, terrorism, uh, surveillance technology uh, primarily. And I've branched out from security technology and surveillance technology to cyberspace and online activity and uh, different kinds of technology that can be used to regulate online activity and the ethics of such regulation. So that, that's a bit of, uh, of background of just some of the topics that I've, I've worked on uh, in the cyberspace area. I've worked on online aggression, crime and retaliation against aggression and crime, fraud, um, digitalantism, all that kind of thing. Excellent. So thanks. So, so when you say you've been working in this area for about 15 years, I mean, that, that's not far off the age of social media itself. I think, you know, Facebook started about 2007, I, I seem to remember, or maybe it came to the UK in 2007. And it, it's felt, looking back over that time, that social media has never been terribly far from the news uh, when it comes to ethics, whether it's about um, questions about privacy. I mean, I remember when your wall used to be public by default and everything that you put on your wall, as it was then called, could then be searched on by people, through to questions about curating news and moderating pornographic content, um, politicization and what was acceptable politically what was not acceptable politically and questions about research ethics from a few years back when they were uh, engaged in some work around emotions so a vast range is there anything in particular that you've been focusing on or that, that really interests you in the in the area of social media yeah i've been uh, interested in various kinds of online harm i suppose um so i'm interested in um stalking as it manifests itself on the internet, on grooming, um, grooming uh, children um, for sex. That's another kind of online harm. Um, uh, I've been looking at uh, some kinds of very aggressive 
uh, digilantism, as I was saying before, um, misinformation, uh, misinformation uh, directed, for example, at um, a public health effort. Um, so misinformation about vaccines in, 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 uh, in recent years, but before that, uh, misinformation uh, leading to manipulation of elections uh, in democracies. All those uh, things uh, have been of interest to me, and I think I've written about all of them. Excellent. That's quite a quite a broad range. Mm -hmm. um, so, is there something? Yeah, you know, as you go through those, there's always a slight luddite in me that just says, "But th these are pre-existing ethical problems." Is is there something peculiar to social media that changes the angle on these? Because obviously, with misinformation, we can look at propaganda in the past. Child grooming, hideously, has you know been with yes. us for a very long time, yes. and so on. So most of these things feel like you know it is simply a matter of taking them from um, meat space into cyberspace, for want of using some dated terms. Well, I, I do think that there are some things that are uh, very characteristic of social media. And perhaps the most central is um, the perceived importance of image making. So it's true that in the offline space, people try to, um, to cultivate an image. Uh, that's true, uh, among many other activities. But I think in the social media space, the, the cultivation of image, the protection of image, as, as one says really annoyingly these days, the curation of, of image, um, all of these things are extremely central, it seems to me, uh, to, the, to the kind of day-to-day uh, -day, uh, life of social media. And uh, there are many things about it that are objectionable from the point of view of a kind of um, strict morality. Um, I mean, there's the, the sheer narcissism of it a lot of the time, where because one's interested in cultivating an image of oneself, one's very preoccupied with oneself, but not in a self-critical way, but more in a kind of spin-doctorish way, where you're cultivating your own image um, and uh, trying to present uh, uh, an image that may hide you know, defects and where the rules of the game are much more to do with successfully cultivating an image that attracts admiration and uh, that uh, repels criticism uh, than one would find in, in normal life. Um, so I, I do think that that aspect of it, it's not necessarily uh, embedded in every transaction in, on social media, but it seems to me to be very characteristic of it. Okay, so you think it goes significantly beyond the fact that we take a care about our appearance or we watch what we say when we're in public. We might not air all of our political or social views in public because we've got a certain amount of self-control over how we present. You think it goes significantly further than that then? Yes, because uh, for one thing, um, uh, many people who are involved in social media are trying to assemble uh, a group of, well, they're called friends in inverted commas sometimes, but certainly they're trying to, they're trying to uh, cultivate a group of people they interact with who are not just friendly to them, but also perhaps admiring of them. 
Um, many people are interested in having as large a following as possible, which I don't think is typical of, um, you know, ordinary life. I think that there's a certain sense in which, in which the the ruling ideal of at least some social media is to construct a kind of celebrity for oneself, or at any rate, you know, gaining a certain celebrity is a mark of success. And of course, it can be monetized because the more the more followers you have and so on, the more advertising and so on you, you, you get and the more, not only the more fame you get, but the more money you get. So all of that's very well known. <clears throat> I think that's something that um, starts to um, uh, distinguish social media existence from, from ordinary existence. Um, uh, this idea that you have a, a huge following or a not a fan base, but something that could become a fan base, something mm -hmm. that overlaps with a fan base. Um, that sort of thing is uh, is a little worrying. And then I think there's also the the you know the the sort of Snow White effect, where one some people enter social media spaces and they don't exactly say mirror mirror on the wall who's the fairest of them all, but there is a sort of subtext. Uh, uh, of that kind sometimes, or maybe a kind of cooperation between consumers and users of social media, uh, according to which, if you admire me, I'll admire you. <laughs> if you follow me, I'll follow you. And uh, uh, yeah, you know, so a certain sort of tit, tit for tat exchange in terms of followership and, and so on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's much more transactional than than things used to be, I believe. Hmm. And and it sounds like I was going to ask you whether whether you saw some of the main problems as being inherent to social media or, or you know, related to the companies and the way those act. But from what you're saying, it sounds actually as if the problems with human nature It's just that now, this is something well, which has tapped into a darker part of human nature. I'm not sure. I mean, I, I don't think it I don't want to pin my colors to a claim about whether some of these features in here in this in social media as a as a kind of uh, a channel of communication. I'm sure that social media could have developed differently, um, but I'm simply saying that as it has developed, maybe um, after Facebook and so on, uh, and maybe after some of the, 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 um, the sites where you post from moment to moment what's going on in your life as if you were a celebrity, um, and as if what goes on from moment to moment in your life would be of interest to uh, lots of other people. Um, I think it has developed this way. I don't make the claim that it must have developed this way, uh, but but there it is. Um, and then if we uh, if we look beyond the the, the sort of uh, image making, you have perhaps it's equal and opposite. <laughs> reaction which is the deflation of image and maybe the destructive um you know a kind of iconoclasm where, where you you try to to uh, uh demolish uh people's uh, self images where they seem to be inflated or, or pretentious and sometimes when they're perfectly sincere and worthy uh one wants to to tear them down too I think this image making and image unmaking uh, dynamic is extremely familiar mm. uh, on the internet and some kinds of online harm, um, you know, 
arise from that from those two polarities if you see what i mean is there is there not though a certain sort of democratization going on around celebrity and as you would say iconoclasm too it, it's uh, admittedly with iconoclasm you've always got an element of the mob coming in but it, i suppose it really with celebrity you also have an element of the mob it's just whether the mob is for yeah. you or against you in a particular case well yes i guess it's there's a kind of democratization if if what you mean by that is that um uh, lots of people who may who might not have risen to prominence in class terms or in traditional you know through traditional forms of education or you know other uh, mm. gate kept uh, bits of uh, ladders to success some of those people can get to prominence uh in a, in different and new ways uh so that more people have access to fame and more more people have access to approval than previously uh yes i suppose that's true and i suppose that's good at times though some of the people who become pr uh, prominent are maybe not so hugely attractive um uh, in every case but you know one can also say is it really uh, uh very democratic because uh, we're now talking about the, you know, billions of people uh, operating in this space and a very, very tiny proportion of those is, um, is coming to prominence. Most of those are English speaking. Most of those are, are, uh, you know, Western. Um, and so it's probably less democratic than it looks, uh, given that, that its reach is global. That's fair enough. Although, although perhaps the fact that English is often just the lingua franca um, of the internet, uh, for better or worse, uh, might might have an element there as well. But it kind of touches on that that celebrity aspect and what some celebrities choose to do with their time is that, um, you know. Social media, I mean, the internet in general, but particularly social media, has become very much a hub for social activism, from some perspectives. Uh, but it also clearly opens up opportunities for trolling and taking people down, as you say, that sort of iconoclasm uh, to yeah. people. Although it doesn't always have to be the so-called celebrities that are taken down. It's often yeah. normal people that are subject to trolling as well. Yeah. Now, as you said at the, at the beginning, you've written a bit about hacktivism, digilantism and so on. So do you have any, well, let, let's just start generally. Do you have any thoughts about that? What's, what's your kind of perspective on that? Well, let's let's start with the distinction between trolling and and vigilantism you know uh, i take trolling to be very often a kind of gaming where mm -hmm. you're you're uh, the troll is um approaching people on the internet and trying to get a rise out of them and sometimes they do that in very cruel ways um and sometimes the the idea is to is to uh uh, you know, break down the self-image of uh, people who are themselves a little insecure and um, uh, uh, vulnerable, uh, and and I quite see that that that's a very dangerous kind of game to play. But the what I'm what I mean is that trolling really demands a response from the person being trolled. If people are ignored, then trolling hasn't worked. If they get a rise out of the people who are being trolled then it works so it's a kind of game you know the the troll wins if he gets a rise out of the mm -hmm. person or makes them angry or makes them engage for a long period of time with them 
digitalantism is different, you know. Uh, digitalantism is a kind of response uh, to, to either the breaking of certain received conventions, conventions that are received on a, among an online audience, or um, the contravention of law in certain cases. So some digitalantism is directed against uh, online groomers, pedophiles. Um, other kinds of digitalantism is directed against people who break um, conventions that are respected in feminism or that are respected in anti-racist uh, um, uh, milieu. There, there's a lot of conventions that are, if we like, if we like to say this, policed by by per people who have certain values and who want to call out, as they say, criticize uh, people who break those conventions. So I think digitalantism has on the surface uh, sometimes a much more serious purpose. Sometimes it's trying to enforce, in a way, law that isn't being enforced in the offline world. Uh, sometimes it's trying to, um, uh, to make people who transgress real law um, feel that they're not invulnerable or, or unreachable behind, you know, their masks online and so on. And, you know, some digitalantism is directed against extremely nasty, cruel, law-breaking people. So I think, I think of digitalantism as existing, uh, some parts of, uh, of digitalantism as existing in the same space as law itself, um, uh, that is being concerned to reduce harm to people. Um, uh, and at the, the sort of more contentious end, it is just uh, policing certain conventions that uh, groups prefer to, to, to see respected, but that are not illegal uh, to break, like conventions over using pronouns or uh, conventions over, um, you know, whether when one writes um, and, and, and tries to present cases, uh, one, one has those cases concern women instead of men. Uh, that sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> those are conventions that could be policed, but that's not at the, at the so to speak, uh, high harm reducing part of the, of the internet, generally speaking. Mm. So, 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 so there's digitalantism and trolling. Um, um, and one of the things about digitalantism and trolling I want to say is that they're often directed at individuals. Both of them are directed at individuals who are individual transgressors. Um, but uh, uh, when we look at hacktivism and things of that kind, we're usually looking at uh, a targeting of institutions and sometimes governments. Uh, so you know we have we have those kinds of distinctions uh, that that can be made, and. Um, uh, you know, that gives you some idea of what the terrain looks like, at least from my point of view. So, so it's sounding from what you're saying is that digitalantism in the examples that you gave all felt to me as very justifiable, very reasonable, um, law, reasonable actions to take, very law-abiding um, actions as well. So, 
what about hacktivism? Are you distinguishing between hacktivism and digilantism then in terms of the legality or the justifiability of the approach? Well, first of all, I don't want to, I, I don't support digilantism in general at all. I'm simply saying that digilantism might be more serious uh, than uh, trolling uh, is. It may be targeted, it may be targeting the same things as law targets. But in general, my view is that law is to be preferred to vigilantism for, for the same reason as vigilantism is not such a great thing. The, and the trouble with, with vigilantism is that even if you get the right people and punish the right people, um, there's nothing to, to prevent uh, people being punished disproportionately. And even worse, there's nothing to prevent in a normal vigilante and also digilante setting uh, punishing the completely innocent because of some misunderstanding. So in the case of online pedophile hunting groups, uh, the wrong people, people who, have no, who are not guilty of pedophilia, have sometimes been charged with pedophilia mm -hmm. or claim to be pedophiles and have been... Uh, you know, very seriously harmed as, as a result. So I'm not a, um, a supporter of uh, digilantism or vigilantism, but I do think it's a different kind of enterprise from trolling. It's not frivolous, it's not mere game playing, though it can have, it can have some things in common uh, with game playing. <clears throat> I simply say that where its targets are the same kind of harm as law tries to limit, it kind of some of the seriousness of law rubs off on on uh, uh, vigilantism, just as some of the seriousness of law rubs off on vigilantism. The more familiar case of offline uh, punishment of people who get get away with murder. Mm -hmm. So okay. one of the things which you said, Tom, in your writings, and, and I know it chimes with other people as well, is that the, a significant difference is introduced when you're talking about online activist activities because of the element of anonymity. And clearly that's quite different from when we look at um, sort of civil rights movements in the past or indeed anything in the past where anonymity simply hasn't really been an option. Right? Maybe you can look at um printing of pamphlets in the 18th century but even then they they typically found out who was printing the pamphlets after not too long and, and within the civil rights movement you get people being sent to jail whether it's rosa parks martin luther king or mandela in south africa um do you think that is a significant and important difference? I suppose it's probably a good way of starting that in terms of the fact that today the internet offers a level of anonymity which was not there for activists in the past. Well, um, in the things that I've written about um, hacktivism, for example, um, I, wrote a, I wrote a paper that dealt with the hacktivism of WikiLeaks and anonymous and um i think the question i had was whether the anonymity of those organizations was always justified since they often operate in human rights respecting jurisdictions i completely understand why people uh, are anonymous in human rights violating jurisdictions 
But um, I think both of those organizations often operate in human rights respecting ones. So um, the, the question of whether they try to seek a kind of impunity um, by operating as they do arises. Um, and, and one of the ways in which I tried to make this point was by, um, in the case of WikiLeaks, for example, was to uh, contrast the behavior of the newspapers that WikiLeaks cooperates with and, and up to a point depends on, The Guardian and The New York Times, with um, WikiLeaks itself. You know, um, at the time I wrote my paper, very little was known about the personnel in um, in WikiLeaks, and um, you know, very little was done to to convince people who were consuming WikiLeaks sourced information about the ability of WikiLeaks to you know to handle information. They usually handled information by dumping loads of it and relied on newspapers to make it digestible. So that there's this kind of uh, parasitic relationship on um, on newspapers that were subject uh, to law and that uh, didn't in the least think they they uh, they were above the law. Uh, there's a contrast between that and some of the thinking behind WikiLeaks, because there are some people who say, and these are people quite close to WikiLeaks at times, that WikiLeaks doesn't have uh, uh, audiences in domestic jurisdictions exactly. They kind of, uh, WikiLeaks serves a sort of global audience without distinction, national distinctions. And, they, you know, it, it sort of, it sort of gives the impression that, uh, that um, they rise above uh, national distinctions and, 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 and are answerable to the world Mm-hmm. which strikes me as extremely pretentious apart from being obscure so it it's the kind of pretentiousness that goes along with some of this anonymity and the impunity that goes along with some of this anonymity that i was questioning and i was questioning that because um because hacktivists sometimes align themselves with human rights promotion and it's an extremely important part of human rights machinery that uh, states parties to treaties, which are the main medium of human rights enforcement, that states parties to treaties undertake to all the other members of the treaty organization to enforce and be answerable to treaty bodies uh, for the execution of, of, of human rights uh, conventions. Um, so domestic le- the strength of domestic legislation is one of the tests of seriousness of human rights purpose. Mm-hmm. And um, I think in WikiLeaks you get this this uh, this attempt to float above all of that, which which I found objectionable. Uh, in something like the way that I find digitalism, uh, you know, uh, flying above uh, uh, law. Uh, sometimes uh, objectionable wouldn't wouldn't a defender of wikileaks um suggest that you're making an assumption when you say that they are operating in countries which respect human rights law and that the very content which they were presenting um 
or the way in which certain states have responded to WikiLeaks and the Edward Snowden case as well, are actually demonstrative of the fact that these countries are not human rights respecting. And, and with that, and I'm thinking of, you know, in your paper, you talk about the helicopter gunship um, attacking journalists. I'm thinking of Glenn Greenwald's partner being arrested while passing through London's Heathrow Airport. And, and at the time, and obviously we're going back about you know, 10 years or so for some of these cases, but at the time the, the argument was certainly being made that that undermined the credibility of the UK or the US as being human rights respecting organisations? Well, um, uh, I guess I just, uh, I deny that. I mean, I, I, I guess my claim is that, of course, um, the jurisdictions that we live in, uh, or, you know, uh, the UK and the, and the United States and so on, are by no means uh, perfect uh, jurisdictions and lots of things are done in those jurisdictions that are unjust. No question, no question. Uh, but uh, that's a different thing from saying uh, that, um, you know, that it's, it's sort of typical and characteristic government policy, uh, you know, to, um, to unleash injustice for, you know, for the sake of keeping themselves in power and that they do this all the time. I think that would be an exaggeration. Um, uh, and, and in any case, a lot of that would have to be set alongside the fact that these treaties would, many of them, not exist if it were not for, for jurisdictions of the kind that we're talking about uh, at the moment. So, uh, of course, there are kind of, there's imperfect observance of human rights treaties everywhere, and perhaps it's it's kind of more embarrassing and more objectionable that countries with human rights protecting uh, pretensions break them. And I, I guess that's part of the the point of bringing up the Greenwald things and 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 others, um, and <clears throat> and uh, Edward Snowden's uh, very selective uh, scruples about. Uh, when he, uh, when it's proper to act as a spy or not, when it's uh, proper to to be engaged in uh, in surveillance or not, uh, he he clearly wasn't a newcomer to this, um, but he suddenly had many huge scruples about it. Um, so I mean, I think there are many things to be said on all of these sides. Um, uh, so I guess what I'm trying to what I'm trying to say is that. Uh, the more human rights violating uh, a jurisdiction is, the more anonymous um, actions on the part of WikiLeaks and others make sense. Uh, the more there is no other way of doing it, uh, the more that that what uh, WikiLeaks and anonymous do makes sense. The more harm uh, is produced by the events that these organizations are protesting about the more what they do is justified. But if you look at the vast <laughs> range of information that is dumped by WikiLeaks, um, you know, lots of it is, is, is really of not huge importance and not, and doesn't expose huge, um, uh, egregious uh, violations of rights, mm -hmm. like some of that film of the, the Iraqi war atrocities did. Um, so it's mixed, you know, um, and 
I think that that some of these organizations, I wouldn't say this about Anonymous, but WikiLeaks are very pretentious at times um, about uh, how morally pure they are. And some of the behavior of Julian Assange, even when described by friends of his, um, is distasteful. Mm. So, you know, all I'm saying, okay, uh, there's a lot of distasteful people everywhere. <laughs> of course, great. But um, I'm simply saying it should not be taboo for um, organizations like WikiLeaks to criticize Julian Assange, uh, just as it's not taboo for organizations like the BBC to criticize, um, you know, uh, people who, who do wrong in its organization. And uh, if Julian Assange is, uh, is, is uh, guilty of uh, sexual harassment at times, that should be called out um for example yeah okay thank you thank you i think that that's clear so there's a, a difference between sort of systematic um ignoring of human rights as opposed to odd cases or individual cases and so on i think we could we could go well as, as with so much of this we can go down all sorts of angles for a while but i think we're, we're coming we're, we're coming to the end of our time. So I just got one, okay. one more question to ask, which is in what we've covered so far about harms um, and, and sort of your, your accusations, narcissism, and, um, and then looking at the stuff around social media. Are there, one of the key, one of the key things I'm keen with this podcast is to keep coming back to the practical and say, what, what can we do yeah. about this? How can yeah. we respond to this? is there something we can do about either this this narcissistic element that the democratization of celebrity and iconoclasm or the um the issues around anonymous uh digilantism slash hacktivism slash yeah well whatever yes uh well um i think there is yes of course um even though some of the efforts in this in this direction are imperfect, um, you know the idea that there are certain characteristic online harms, and that some of those can be made illegal um, in different jurisdictions, uh, I think that's already acknowledged as part of the answer, and is certainly taken by me to be part of the answer. Um, the efforts of social media platforms to weed out uh, some kinds of disinformation, uh, which are, um, which is usually just exploiting the channels that social media platforms offer in an abusive way. Uh, those kinds of things, which social media firms are already doing, uh, need to be done better. So at the moment, a lot of this content monitoring is not done by very trained people. Mm. I don't think it's paid very well. I think some of it takes place in countries that don't have strong democratic traditions um, and where there isn't always perfect understanding of the language in which some of the uh, damage is being done. So there's a lot of improvement there that, that, uh, that could be brought in by paying more for this kind of of, of monitoring and there could be more aggressive takedowns of some of some kinds of uh, abuse um 
I think another thing, though, which can't be legislated for, is a sort of culture change in, uh, you know, among social media users. And the only thing one can do is to, I think, is to point out uh, that that the the sort of narcissism of some uh, social media users maybe it needs to be sent up rather than you know sternly criticized uh, a lot of it is laughable and a lot of people do make fun of stuff that they find uh, on the on the internet that's less urgent it seems to me than making sure that that uh, vulnerable people especially children whose self images are easily easy to um to destroy and they're uh, easy to to destroy mentally that those people be protected uh, there there are many agreed uh, uh things that uh, have been talked about in this area like not tolerating suicide promoting sites not tolerating anorexia cheerleading sites uh and all the other uh uh objectionable underbelly of the of the internet uh, and so on these are the kinds of things that i think can partly be met by legislation um as some of it regional as in the case of the european union um uh i think that the attitude toward toward all of these things in america is different and the the attitude attitude toward regulating the internet um, on the part of the pioneers of the internet is is very kind of hostile mm. they don't want regulation but this is to do with you know the kind of uh, second nature libertarianism of some people who are who are very influential in the social media world i'm not a libertarian myself and um i i don't think that uh, uh where um uh, the cost of liberty or perfect liberty, a complete lack of regulation is is harm. I don't agree that there should be total liberty. So uh, another thing that could be done is to question the uh, extreme libertarianism of some of some people, especially in America, where these kinds of these lines of thought are are more popular than in Europe. Um, but that's for debate, not for legislation. Mm. Okay, sure. So it, it sounds as if from what you're saying that things are generally moving in the right direction, maybe just not receiving enough money, enough resourcing, or enough focus. Yes, I, I, I mean, uh, uh, we could talk about other cases where, you know, uh, there, there are examples of uh, uh, certain kinds of intolerance uh, in academia or certain uh, uh, kinds of intolerance uh, of lots and lots of things on Twitter, uh, where I think we could we could talk about other things that need to be done. Um, one thing that occurs to me the more I think about these things is how um, expressing things in 144 characters is always a terrible way of of doing anything serious, and um, it's terrible that that we're you know there's so much addiction to uh, to uh, sound bites and instead of arguments okay well with that controversial statement i'll leave that there sound bite. <laughs> mr musk might be after you in due course but uh, okay. he's got to reclaim his 44 billion somehow um, 
Tom, thank you very much for your time. Uh, it's been a real pleasure chatting to you. Really interesting to talk about some of this. And hopefully we'll see you again in the future. Thank you. Thanks. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Getting Technology Right, Ethics and Technology podcast with Dr. Kevin Magnish, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then add this show to your favorite podcast player. Subscribe to the ITSP Magazine YouTube channel and share the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to connect your brand to our conversations and our audience, visit ITSPMagazine.com to learn how to sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.